Hi everyone. It's such a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you again today. I'm grateful that God has brought us safely through another week, and I trust and pray that God will speak to each of us deeply and personally through His Word today. I remember years ago reading a Hagar the Horrible cartoon. I'm not sure if you remember it. It was a comic strip about a Viking called Hagar the Horrible. And in this particular cartoon, a government official bursts into Hagar's home and announces, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. To which Hagar laconically replies, make up your mind. The insinuation being that government officials do more harm than help and that government organisation is a contradiction in terms. We like those kinds of cartoons and those kinds of jokes because it's very easy to identify with them. It's very easy to bash the government. Right now, in our own lives and situation, it's extremely easy to poke fun at a government that allows people to visit casinos, but not to visit their family. And so in this context, and in the political climate in which we find ourselves, Peter's words today are going to be like a bucket of cold water over us. I didn't choose today's passage, it's just the next in our series through First Peter. That's why I enjoy preaching systematically through books of the Bible, because nine times out of ten, God arranges the passages and topics to fit our particular circumstances exactly, and he's doing that for us today. Let's have a look at what Peter says. First Peter chapter 2 and verses 13 to 17. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the king, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the King. This is God's Word. You probably know the rule of social etiquette that states, in polite company one shouldn't discuss religion or politics. Well, here we are as a group of believers about to tackle the thorny issue, not just of politics, but as Peter puts it here, of every human authority. So hold on tight, and hopefully we can still be polite to one another when next we meet. Peter begins the ethical section of his letter by addressing our responsibilities as citizens, You'll remember that a few verses before this, Peter describes us as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And that raises the question of whether, as Christians, we have any allegiance to the institutions of this world at all. If we are indeed foreigners and strangers in the world then maybe we should just withdraw into our own Christian communities and have nothing whatsoever to do with the powers and institutions of the world. Well, Peter's answer to that kind of thinking would be an emphatic no. 
while we are foreigners in the world, we do have responsibilities as God's people in the world. And our primary responsibility is there for us in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. This is not the last time that Peter is going to use this horrible little word, submit. In the verses ahead, Peter is going to call on slaves to submit to their masters, wives to submit to their husbands. You don't want to miss that sermon. I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say on that one. And church members to submit to their elders. So these verses act again as an introductory summary to everything else that Peter is going to say about submission. And because of that, it's probably important to look at the general principle that Peter gives here before looking at the specific application of the principle to our interaction with the governing authorities. Firstly, then, let's look at the principle that Peter gives us here. And the principle is found in verses 13 and 16. Look carefully at what Peter says here. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Peter's logic seems a little shaky here. Submit to others. That means giving up my freedom to serve others. Live as free people. That means embracing freedom. Live as God's slaves, which again suggests giving up my freedom. What exactly does Peter mean? One of the difficulties that we have in understanding these verses comes from our modern Western understanding of freedom, which could be described as negative freedom. Freedom from. Freedom from any restrictions. We think that you are free when you are absolutely free to choose. There are no restrictions on you. You can live where you want, do what you want, be where you want. As one political theorist put it, freedom is what doors are open and how many are open, upon what prospects they open and how open they are. But actually, there is no such thing as negative freedom. Nobody is totally free from all restrictions. Everybody, in fact, is a slave to something. The Greek playwright Euripides, who lived around 450 BC, said this, No one is truly free. They are a slave to wealth, fortune, the law or other people restraining them from acting according to their will. Or, as the American philosopher Bob Dylan puts it in one of his songs, you're going to serve somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, we might ask, how can this be? Surely it's possible to live without any restrictions on us, to be totally liberated. But think of it like this. Everybody has certain commitments in life. They may be very good commitments. 
we're committed to our job, or we're committed to our family, or we're committed to playing tennis. And some of those commitments give us a great deal of joy and sense of purpose, to such an extent that if those things were taken away from us, we would be very lost and may even despair. But all of those commitments bring restrictions. So if I'm committed to my job, there are all sorts of restrictions on me. I have to get up early to go to work. My time from Monday to Friday is not my own. In fact, if I'm very dedicated to my career, I might find that I have to work after hours and on weekends. Think of the tennis player Novak Djokovic, the number one tennis player in the world. I think it's fairly safe to say that he's committed to playing tennis. But his commitment to tennis, the freedom he has to hit a ball in a way that I never could, brings with it a whole lot of restrictions. There are things that he can't eat or things that he can't drink, particularly before a match. There are probably parties he can't attend, books he can't read, time with his family he can't spend, because he's got to be out training. Every commitment has restrictions. Pastor Timothy Keller describes having a conversation with someone in his church who said to him, I am completely emotionally free. I like to date people. I like to have little flings with people. But as soon as they get serious, I'm out of there because I'm free. No restrictions on me. Pastor Tim responded by saying, Well, that's not true. You have one enormous restriction. You are so committed to your independence that you cannot get into a committed relationship. You're restricting yourself from a committed relationship. All of us choose commitments in life, and every commitment brings with it certain restrictions. And in that sense, then, we are slaves to whatever it is we are committed to. Now, it's not just Euripides or Bob Dylan or the example of Novak Djokovic that show us this. The Bible tells us the same thing. Everybody is a slave to something. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, if freedom is not having no restrictions, what then is true freedom? True freedom is finding the liberating restrictions. Going back to Novak Djokovic for a moment, Novak could wake up tomorrow morning and decide that his primary commitment from now on will be to sugar. He won't watch his diet anymore. He'll eat as many donuts as he likes. He'll give up fresh fruit and vegetables and muesli and just stick to sugary treats. He will then have the restriction of soon ending up in a hospital bed with tubes coming out everywhere. Or he can continue his present restrictions of a healthy diet and enough sleep and enough exercise that gives him the freedom to fly around the tennis court and return any shot that's thrown at him. 
You see, there is freedom and restriction in both cases. There's the freedom to eat all the sugar in the world, which has the restriction of a hospital bed and early death, or there's the restriction of diet and exercise and sleep with the freedom to be the world's number one tennis player. Notice in this example that the liberating restrictions are the ones that are in line with how Novak's body is intended to work. The liberating restrictions are the ones that fit our design. You and I were made by God, and life works best when we operate according to the manufacturer's instructions. One writer says that a fish could decide that water is too restrictive and jump out onto the land, but then it would flop around gasping for air because it doesn't have lungs or legs. It's not designed for the land. But put the fish back in the water and with a flick of its tail, it's starting around like lightning. When it's restricted to the water, it's free. All of its potential is released. All of the things it couldn't possibly do on the land, it can now do in the water. God has created us for himself, which means that when we are in him, we are in our natural element, which means obedience to his commands, which makes us truly free to be the men and women God has called us to be. Peter says three things in verses 13 and 16. He says, firstly, that we are to live as God's slaves. Secondly, that in living as God's slaves, we are truly free. And thirdly, he says that we mustn't use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. Rather, we are to use our freedom to serve others. You see, it's only when we are free in God that we can truly serve others. This comes back to some of the things that Peter had to say about our identity in chapter 1. It's only when we understand ourselves to be chosen, sanctified, forgiven, God's special people, that we'll be free to serve others. Many people serve others, but only for what they can get out of them, their thanks or their approval or their appreciation. In other words, they're getting their sense of identity from the people that they are serving. But when you are free in God, your identity is secure in Christ, then you can freely serve even the most difficult people. Which brings us then to Peter's application of this principle. Let me just state the principle again, though. Peter's logic becomes clear when you read verses 16 and 13 backwards. If it sounds like backward logic, it's because it is. Everyone in the world is a slave to something. When we live as God's slaves, Peter says, we become truly free. We don't use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. We use our freedom to serve others even the people who are hardest to serve, the pagan authorities. If this principle of submission works here, then it can work anywhere. So Peter takes this principle of submission and he applies it to the pagan Roman authorities. 
Now, remember that Peter writes these words when Nero is the emperor in Rome. Nero was quite possibly mad. He had his half-brother Britannicus killed. He had his mother Agrippina executed. He accused his first wife Octavia of committing adultery and had her executed, and he forced his teacher, the famous philosopher Seneca, to commit suicide. Nero himself committed suicide at the age of 31. In AD 64, there was a horrific fire in Rome which devastated 10 of Rome's 14 districts. And the rumour began that Nero himself had started the fire so that he could rebuild Rome the way he wanted. One of the historians of the time, Cornelius Tacitus, tells us what happened next. To kill these rumours, Nero charged and tortured some people hated for their evil practices, the group popularly known as Christians. They were covered in the skins of wild animals, torn to death by dogs, crucified or set on fire so that when darkness fell they burned like torches in the night. Nero opened up his own gardens for the spectacle and gave a show in their arena where he mixed with the crowd or stood dressed as a charioteer on a chariot. As a result, although they were guilty of being Christians and deserved death, people began to feel sorry for them, for they realised that they were being massacred not for the public good, but to satisfy one man's mania. Peter himself would be crucified during Nero's persecution. Now, clearly Peter writes these words before these events take place. There is no empire-wide persecution of Christians at the time of this letter, and yet persecution of Christians has started, and Peter knows it will get worse. And still he writes, Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. What can Peter mean? Well, Peter tells us why we submit and how we submit. Firstly, why are we to submit? Peter gives us three reasons. Firstly, we're to submit to every human authority because we're called upon to respect everyone. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Remember last time I quoted from C.S. Lewis, where he spoke about how our choices make us a creature of beauty, or rather an everlasting horror. In his book, The Weight of Glory, Lewis took that principle and he applied it to our interactions with other people. And he wrote this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. 
There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendours. If we were to take Lewis's words to heart, then racism would end tomorrow morning. Peter says that authorities are made in God's image and so deserve the honour that every human being deserves from us. If we were to turn that concept around, we should perhaps say that we should treat everyone around us like a king or a princess. Secondly, we are to submit to every human authority because human authority is God's gift. That's what Peter means in verse 14 where he says, Submit yourselves to governors who are sent by the king to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. That's what human authority is there for. It doesn't mean that human authorities always get that right. It doesn't always work out this way. But think about where we would be without any government at all. There are times and places where all governance falls apart, and then it is horrific. Some of you will remember William Golding's book, Lord of the Flies. Many of us had to study it at school. And if you did study it at school, one of the first things you would have learned was that Golding was reacting to a much earlier book called Coral Island by R. M. Ballantyne. Ballantyne wrote a book about a group of sailors shipwrecked on a desert island and how their commitment to hierarchy and leadership got them through. In Lord of the Flies, Golding wrote Coral Island in reverse. He imagined that if young boys were left to themselves without any structures or governance or people in authority, it would go terribly wrong and turn deadly, as indeed it does in the book. You and I can be eternally grateful for the fact that we live in a country that has a government. Paul writes to Timothy and says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That doesn't mean that we can't pray that God removes leaders, but to remove all leadership would lead to chaos, even for me and you. One of the things that limits the potential evil in our own lives are the laws of the land. If they weren't there, who knows what we could be capable of. Thirdly, we're to submit to every human authority because God has put them in place. This isn't stated explicitly here, but if you look at a parallel passage in Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, this sounds absurd when certain political leaders come to mind, but if you're serious about your belief in the sovereignty of God, you can't deny this. Either you have to say that God is in control of all nature and all history, except bad politicians, or you have to say God is sovereign even over the election of this man or woman. 
Remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw how God is sovereign over evil. Evil doesn't come from God, but God is so in control of evil that he can use it against itself to bring about something good, even though we might not see that in this lifetime. God uses evil against itself like a judo player uses his opponent's strength to defeat him. We see that in the story of Joseph. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. And if God can do that with evil actions, surely he can do that with evil people. In fact, the Bible tells us that he does. Remember Peter and the other disciples' prayer in the book of Acts, after the Jewish leaders begin to persecute them. They pray, Lord Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Herod wasn't a good king, Pilate wasn't a good governor, and yet God used them to orchestrate events that would lead to the salvation of the world. Now, this understanding of God's sovereignty doesn't mean total inaction on our part. We live in a democracy where we have the gift of the ballot box. We have the gift of peaceful protest. We have the gift of signing petitions. But Peter's command here to us suggests that even when we are protesting and speaking out against injustice, we do so with respect and honour. So Peter gives us the why of submission, but secondly, Peter also gives us the how of submission. How are we to submit? We've looked at the first one already. We submit freely, not because we're coerced. Many people who aren't Christians keep the law because they're afraid of the consequences. If they don't, they're motivated by fear. But we obey not because we're forced to or because we fear the consequences, but because we freely choose to. Secondly, we submit as an act of obedience and worship. Peter begins in verse 13 by saying, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. We choose to honour the king, not necessarily because he's worthy of honour, but because we fear God. We may have to say in our hearts, you don't deserve the honour, but God deserves my honour, and as an act of obedience to him, I will submit. Driving, then, is an act of worship. Filling out my tax return is an act of worship. Wearing a face mask is an act of worship. I do these things because God tells me to submit to the authorities, and I do so out of love for him. Thirdly, we obey only in as much as obedience to people doesn't mean disobedience to God. I think that's implied in the distinction that's there in verse 17, where Peter says, Fear God, honour the king. Remember that Peter is the same man who twice in the book of Acts, chapter 4 and chapter 5, says to the Jewish authorities who are telling him not to preach, we must obey God rather than human beings. 
Now, this is probably the point you've been waiting for, isn't it? As soon as we talk about submission to authority, everyone thinks, ah, yes, but what if the government tells you to do something that is against God's word? But we probably should be a bit realistic here. When was the last time the government commanded you to do something that's against God's word? But speed limits aren't against God's word. Tax compliance isn't against God's word. Quite the opposite, in fact. The Bible in several places specifically commands us to pay our taxes. Copyright laws aren't against God's word. Lockdown restrictions aren't against God's word. We should be careful that we aren't disrespectful or disobedient because of our argument that we should obey God rather than people. But fourthly, if our obedience to God restricts our obedience to the government in that we won't do what God's word commands us not to do, then also our obedience to God expands our obedience to the government in that we will do more than the government requires from us. That's what Peter is speaking about in verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Remember, as we saw last time, that the unbelievers of Peter's day were accusing Christians of the most horrendous things, atheism, cannibalism, incest, orgies. Peter says, you're to live such good lives so as to undercut the false accusations. You're to live in such a way that nobody will believe the rumours. And the early Christians did. Yes, they did not take a pinch of incense and burn it at the temple of the emperor and say the words, Caesar is Lord. Their Christian faith restricted their obedience and they paid a heavy price for it. But their Christian faith also expanded their obedience, so they did far more than the Roman government ordered them to do. In ancient Rome, unwanted babies or deformed babies or even babies that were of the wrong sex were legally allowed to be put on the garbage heap and left to die. As one writer of the time puts it, Christians sought out the tiny bodies of newborn babies from the refuse and dung heaps and raised them as their own or tended to them before they died or gave them a decent burial. They cared for the poor, whether Christian or non-Christian. They welcomed the homeless and the outcasts. They sheltered people after earthquakes. They nursed the sick during plagues when everyone else fled the city. They didn't fear sickness or death. And their witness won over the world. In fact, those kinds of practices have continued from the time of Peter right up until the present day. You think of the hospice movement, the Red Cross, Wilberforce's decades of struggle to abolish slavery. Christianity has had such an impact on the world that even some present-day secular historians are recognising that Christianity changed the course of human history for the better. There's something else that's important in this concept of doing more than the state requires. We've run out of time to go into this in detail now, but it does open up the possibility of respectful disagreement with the state and respectful, peaceful disobedience. You see, under apartheid, 
Peter's words here and Paul's words in Romans chapter 13 were used to suggest that we should just be law-abiding citizens and do what the government told us to do. But as we've seen, that was a misinterpretation. We're to do better than the government tells us to do. And by our example, we're to shame unjust laws. The early disciples could submit to the Roman authorities because they were under no illusions that the Roman Empire was going to save the world. They knew that their new society was truly the hope of the world. In my own life, I've tended to think that if I vote for the right political party and the good guys get in, then society will be transformed. But no, it's when the church feeds the hungry and builds homes for the homeless and cares for the sick and dying that society can truly be changed. Waiting for government to change South Africa doesn't seem to have worked very well over the last 60 years. Perhaps it's time again to live as God's new society, as a witness to the world. Once again, we've covered a great deal of material today, and there's probably still a few questions in our minds with regards to this passage. I hope we'll ask the questions, maybe in our life groups this week. Maybe you could go for a walk with another member of the congregation to chat about this passage, or organise a socially distanced tea in your retirement village. But again, you and I are called to be God's slaves. And when we're his slaves, we're truly free. We don't use our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but instead we serve others so that they too may come to God. The great reformer Martin Luther wrote a little essay called On the Freedom of a Christian. And in the beginning of the essay, he writes this. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That's contradictory, but it's what Peter describes in these verses, and what the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Though I am free, and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. In this week that lies ahead, let's submit ourselves to every authority that we can, out of love for God, freely, so that these men and women may see our good deeds and come to know our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.